Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then, in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have seen the movies, sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Psycho Candy, the 1985 album by the Jesus and Mary Chain. Uh, not literally the first in a line of, like, Scottish art rock weirdness, uh, but pretty early on, and I'd say pretty influential in the whole thing. Um, this is an album, um, and I probably should have had something more pithy to start with there, but I didn't. Um, it's, yeah, go ahead. I mean, all I had was the Jesus and Mary chain in this economy, so... I don't know that pithy is necessarily going to be what we do this morning. I'm so sick of that, that <laughs> format. <laughs> I really liked it at first, and then I just got so sick it's, of it after it's everyone old. did it. Um, but yes, in this economy. Um, Psycho Candy is if you ran Beach Boys Pop through a chainsaw. I think that's... Uh, a fair way to describe it. Um, I don't think that's particularly novel either. I think you could find one or both of those reference points in a lot of reviewers. Um, basically, these this is a duo primarily uh, who's fairly minimalist uh, and who makes gorgeous bubblegum pop, uh, but you'd be forgiven for not uh, knowing that right off the bat uh, because it's... Basically, they write that, distort the hell out of it, and make it sound like you've run it through an industrial shredder, so that you have these these beautiful little melodies and beautiful little songs in the center of just utterly chaotic, utterly metallic noise. Um, it's some of the some of the heaviest stuff on this list, um, and it's made fairly minimally. It doesn't really need speed. It doesn't need. Uh, really depth or intricacy of instrumentation necessarily. Like these are pretty um, simple compositions, all things told, but some of the heaviest and just loudest stuff on this list. And 
Um, not surprised it's here at all. What are we at? Number 56, I think. Five? One, two, three, four, 50, 50, 50, yeah, 55. <laughs> um, and I don't, I'm curious about this one. I think it's definitely going to drop as this list goes on. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know that I think it should or shouldn't, but I'm not surprised that it's here with like, what this composition of writers was. Um, but I do kind of expect it'll drop uh, as it goes forward, which is kind of sad because, as I said, this one's from 85, so it's one of the, if not the earliest album on this list. Um, right? Granted, it's the year of the cutoff. I think maybe the replacements one is earlier, but yeah. I was going to ask because I was sort of curious about this for my for my own, you know, um, learning here. I was interested about this stretch that we're in, um, which if you start it from, let me make sure I'm doing this right. If you start it from New Day Rising and then take it down to Appetite for Destruction, there's a run of five out of seven albums that are 80s, um, which I think is sort of interesting. And maybe we can save this discussion for, for Guns and Roses in a couple episodes if you want. Um, though I can imagine there are plenty of other things you'd rather talk about um, for that particular set. Um, I mean, it just sort of, it seems interesting to me that we are in this sort of like this stretch of very 80s stuff, especially when, I don't know, it seems like it's been more varied. Like there hasn't been quite as much, um, quite as much emphasis on like one decade or another going down. And now it seems like all of a sudden we've gotten, um, that full ladies experience that, that we have lamented maybe a little bit not having earlier in the in the series i think maybe it's the list realizing oh we should probably have some more 80s stuff in here i, I mean i honestly think maybe that's part of it that kind of like when we forget something and it's like Ooh. well let's stuff them all right here <laughs> um i don't think that's all of it um yeah it's interesting and, and that they're like right past this halfway point too um I wonder if it's right within the voting body. I could I could easily imagine like across the multiple ballots or however they you know physically did this like the '80s ones being some of the highest variance entries um, that right, depending on your age and like your particular music listening, I could easily see some of these being very high for some folks and then other ones having them you know, low in the hundred, like low in the top hundred or maybe even outside of it. So, um, you know, these are kind of ending up in the middle in a weird little run, but I could, I could see them as high variance entries. Um, and I, you know, I think that speaks a little bit to what I'm guessing too, that I think they're vitally important for some listeners and maybe not falling out of favor, but just falling out of, uh, some some level of recognition for others. So um, I'm curious where all of these 80s albums end up and whenever they do the next version of this. Like, I think Guns N' Roses is probably big enough that like it doesn't matter for them necessarily. Like, I think that's more of a Guns N' Roses judgment call than a, like, oh, we don't know what that is. Like, everyone knows Appetite for Destruction. Um but yeah, stuff like Husker Du or Jesus and Mary Chain, um, 
like weird little alt rock bands that are a ton of fun. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know how much cachet they have going forward. Janet Jackson, like, is a big name on her own, but that album, you know, as we kind of talked about, I don't know. Um, oh, we'll see. Um, and, but yeah, some of that earlier, just like alt rock, indie rock stuff, it's going to be really interesting what happens with it. Um, you know, Sonic Youth is way up high on this thing, and I think they probably stay there, but Sonic Youth might be the, like, they're the name that kind of uh, fills in for the whole thing at a certain point. Um, and the replacements will probably stay up there too, but I'm, I'm, I'm very interested where some of this later list stuff ends up. Um, but yeah, I, I, to me it seems naturally set up for like, these are high variance entries that uh, it just kind of depends on what writers are in the room, um, where they end up. And I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if they have kind of a slow fall down the thing as this, as we get new iterations of this. But I don't know. Did you have any sense of that, or like, what, like how the '80s of it all was sticking out to you? Yeah, I was sort of just thinking that like Sonic Youth came to mind to me as like Sonic Youth is like a, a shorthand for a certain kind of '80s '80s rock, and like you keep them around, and then. Um, not to make this the shoegaze podcast that the internet wants it to be, but like this this album was like reminiscent of of Loveless a little bit, and like if you've got my bloody Valentine up there, then then how high do you need to have Jesus and Mary Chain if you're thinking about albums that are, you know, by the next time they they do this, like forty years old, you know, like that's that's something to consider as well. So like that's that to me is sort of the question of do they feel like they have the representation or the coverage they need? Um, but this one, this album would be sort of sad to to see drop. I, I think it would benefit from more listens from me because this is like Jesus and Mary Chain is one of those bands. I'm like, oh yeah, cooler people than I do listen to this. Um, like they are, they are one of those bands. I'm like, yes, I, I know they exist, but have never picked them up before. Um, and, and I found this album really appealing um, I thought it was like, I'm always a sucker for like a super short album, which this is not literally the shortest album, but it's like under 40 minutes and it makes everything just feel a little bit more brisk when you, when you take it all together. Um, like for me, I think the, the Beach Boys thing is almost most appropriate because there is this kind of briskness in the, in the lyrics, in the music and the songs themselves, like even like from everything from length to like the introductions, like all of that stuff just feels really tight. Um, in a, in a way that's, that really is like a different, a different approach to the material than <laughs> you can imagine the Beach Boys having, but like a similar starting point. Like, I think that is really cool. And it, it's clear that like this, this is a band that can make a, well, I'm going to move back slightly. I think they are definitely one of those, like, markers of cool, like you were saying. Like, um, I'm sort of surprised there aren't, like, more Jesus and Mary Chain shirts floating around mm -hmm. as, like, hip fashion statements. Um, but it's also clear that they can, right, they can write a tune just like Honey has, has appeared in a lot of things. Like, it has placement in a lot of media. Um, you may not... 
I, I don't know. I don't think it's such that like people hear it and go, "Oh, Jesus and Mary Chain." Yeah, I definitely think Jesus and Mary Chain is a like a marker for cool, like you were saying. Um, you know, I'm surprised I don't see more like uh, more Jesus and Mary Chain shirts as as hip fashion statements. Um, maybe kind of the B level tier of that, but like I'm surprised they're not more a part of that because um, I think their name is definitely you know part of this. You know, as we were just saying, this like '80s, in particular, uh, alt rock, indie rock move um, that is, I think, at this point, you know, canonized as a cool thing. Like that's for the cool kids. And you know, if you grow up listening to that stuff, they're kind of, they're just on kind of a different level than what we uh, dweebs are. Um, I love these bands, but I also support the dweebs. I think you need to listen to regrettable stuff when you're growing up. Um, but anyway, uh, and it's clear that Jesus and Mary Chain knows how to write a good tune too. Like, just like Honey in particular has a lot of media placement. It's been in it's been in a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. I don't think it's one that you hear it and you go, "Oh yeah, that's the Jesus and Mary Chain," which I think speaks to kind of what you're asking and what we're into a little bit here that like, I don't know that this is a band that is immediately recognizable from their songs, even though their style is, if you know what it is. Um, but it's a name that I think has uh, quite a bit of recognition. I think a lot of people could say, Oh, I know that as a band, but I don't know them. Um, but you can hear in stuff like just like honey that they could have been, you know, huge pop stars if they really wanted to. Um, but they were a lot more interested in kind of diverting the path of guitar music in this 1985 moment, which is something we've talked about before um, across a few episodes, I think, like how this is a particularly pivotal moment for what guitar rock is doing, um, especially in the UK. But yeah, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to ask if you wanted me to prove your point. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> All right, so I'm, I was listening to, to Just Like Honey, and I'm like, oh, I know this song. Where have I heard this song before? And then it turns out Just Like Honey is the song that plays at the very end of Lost in Translation and that Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson whispering thing. And I'm like, yes, that's where I know this. Like, that was, and I had no idea that was Jesus and Mary Chain. Like, this is an exact, <laughs> like, it's going to sound like I'm making this up to prove your point, but, like, that is exactly what happened. I'm like, I don't know these people I know this song. It's from the cool movie. It's from the movie that people really like. Like that was that's exactly what that what that is. Don't you have Lost in Translation hot takes? Is this the moment? <laughs> like I'm not I'm not a fan. Um, I think I think Lost in Translation is a little bit corny, and people. I don't know. Like as far as Sofia Coppola goes, you would do much better to go back and watch the Bling Ring again. Because that's that's so much more profound and thoughtful than Lost in Translation, but I mean, I can I can save some Sofia Coppola hot takes as someone who does who does actually like her work, which I realize is almost hot takey anymore. Oh, is that the that's sad? If that's the point where, <laughs> um, well, we'll save that, but um. Anywho, so uh, good chances, listeners, that you've probably heard Just Like Honey at some point in the background of your lives, and uh, if you go through and listen to Psycho Candy now, it's the first track, you don't have to go mm -hmm. far, and you too may have 
wait a minute moments. Um, so I think that speaks pretty well to kind of the nature of this band's style and just their legacy. Uh, they do seem to be kind of one of those wait a minute bands uh, that maybe I should trademark that term and write about it as like everyone has heard something about <laughs> heard something from this band or like they recognize something uh, but they you know they can't put the two and two together there um, and psycho candy in particular again right we describe the general sound like I think that's the biggest thing people need to know going in because um, it's the thing that's gonna confront you right away um, just like honey is a, is a little bit softer overall which I think is why it's the major pull out like here's the reference point here's the hit um, but the rest of this gets uh, loud it gets hard it gets uh, distorted and fuzzy as all hell um, and it gets, you know, you're, you're really trying to hang on to those little beautiful kernels in the center of all these songs as just noise happens around all of them. Um, and that kind of, that more or less takes us into what our topic for today is going to be, which um, I think I wrote down initially is gauzy goodness. We might just call it gauzy. I don't know. Gauzy is the thing here. Uh, we're going to roll with the adjective. Um, and as any good first year writing student in college would do, I, I went to the dictionary and I would like to begin with the definitions offered for gauzy. Um, do you not like my strategy? You raised your eyebrow at me. In this economy? <laughs> in this economy. Um, number one, uh, this one's shocking, I know. Resembling gauze. Thin and translucent. That's the key there. Thin and translucent. Okay, number two. Uh, marked by vagueness, elusiveness, or fuzziness. And number three, uh, tending to be or make romantic. Interesting little run of definitions, I think. That was actually, it was exciting to see that range. Um, so I, I'm not intending to, like, uh, rate how these albums fit on all three of those. I'm just offering them as um, three senses of that word and considering how the albums fit into those um so looking at psycho candy very briefly uh for thinking of thin and translucent i think for me that's the again the little you know chamber pop uh melodies and songs in the middle of these aggressive borderline industrial dirges um around them um that you're looking for for those, or, or yearning for those, really, kind of thin, translucent, far away, um, beautiful moments in the middle of these songs um, that have been built around in layers and layers of distortion. Um, so they sound, again, they sound far away. They sound kind of translucent. They sound uh, ethereal in some way. Um, and I think that builds into the romanticism of it all, too, just especially given just how beautiful the core of these songs are, um, that there is that kind of romanticism that, like, right, we can get to that middle space if we, you know, we have to cut through all the the mess and the distortion and the fuzz and the, uh, and, and the metal and all of it. But if we can get through that, there's this beautiful heart to the thing. 
Um, so I think, right, if we're thinking about resembling gauze or the romanticism of it all, um, there is, I know, I suppose, kind of this wistfulness. Uh, I, I think again in the middle of all these songs, um, but it, it's you know sirens wails around it. Um, and in terms of vagueness, elusiveness, or fuzziness, well, I think I've basically implicitly been describing that. This is the the whole thing is built out of fuzz on this. Um, you don't have to go too far into hearing the guitar tones they're striking to to realize how just uh, vague and messy and staticky and fuzzy this whole thing is. Um, and again, the elusiveness of those middle parts of those melodies of those. Um, pretty simple pop songs that Jesus and Mary Chain could have made a big career out of, uh, but they were more interested in, you know, how do we take this in a different direction for guitar rock, for guitar pop? Like, how do we make this something different? Um, how do, you know, how do we experiment with it to some degree? Um, and there, there's a, a vague, an elusiveness or fuzziness that comes from that as well. Um, so I guess just as a wrapping up in general, like, this is a band that does, as I was saying, chamber pop or 80s guitar pop even. Like they're definitely in conversation with, you know, early 80s stuff with the rise of synth pop in particular uh, and makes something muscly and minimal. Uh, and, you know, you invoked shoegaze earlier. This episode is basically <laughs> shoegaze episode. It's called something different, but like I, it's, it's related. Um, and, you know, Psycho Candy becomes an album that helps. It, it doesn't establish necessarily, but it helps really firm up the path for where alt rock is going, the path to shoegaze, um, the path for a lot of guitar rock experimentation that's going to happen in the late 80s in particular. Um, and even more particularly, a lot of experimentations that will happen with distortion, which is a topic we've talked about before very explicitly in the Sonic Youth episode way back when. Um, and, you know, something that I've brought up in other episodes as well as uh, a sound technique that can be particularly weaponized. And Jesus and Mary Chain are definitely doing that and doing it with aplomb. So, anything on uh, anything else on Psycho Candy or anything on our theme before I put us into the subtitle options? No, I think that was a that was a good intro, um, and it had much less to do with Lost in Translation than mine did, which which is beneficial. That's a movie I haven't watched in a long while, <laughs> so I'm not going to get into it and pretend I I remember everything. Um, I, I will tell the listeners at home a little inside baseball. Not inside baseball, just inside my head. Um, as you were talking, I went to look at your theme for today, which has changed, um, mm -hmm. and was trying to pre-plan a segue. I have my work cut out for me, folks. Let's see where I end up. Good luck. Yeah, so our, uh, our options for today are going to be um, uh, an album that is... Honestly, I could have easily put it in the shoegaze episode. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure I thought about it there for a while. Uh, but it, it's Heaven or Las Vegas, the 1990 album by the Cocktail Twins. And our other one is going to be Kill for Love, the 2012 album from the Chromatics. So 
again, let's just just preface this and I suppose get it out of the way. If you are one of the apparently uh, majority internet listeners who like our shoegaze uh, wonderings and musings, this this is the is an episode for you. Um, and I'm gonna stop invoking the term now. I think I've done it enough for our buzz purposes. But go listen to all of these and listen to me uh, talk about uh, first the cocktail twins. Um, so again, uh, happened in Las Vegas. This comes out in 1990. This is another Scottish band, so part of this uh, burgeoning and ongoing Scottish uh, indie rock weirdness, art rock thing. That's a very precise and official term, I know, but you know this this includes Jesus and Mary Jane, Cocktail Twins, Bell and Sebastian, Camera Obscura, Franz Ferdinand, eventually. Um, there's a lot of bands in this orbit, um, and a lot of just interesting guitar, like post-punk-ish stuff. Like this is a lot of dancey art rock kind of stuff happening, um, and that's sort of the thread that we take through a lot of it. Cocktail Twins are more explicitly shoegaze, so again, this would have fit perfectly with with My Bloody Valentine with Slow Dive. But we have them here, and speaking of you know, marked by vagueness, elusiveness, and fuzziness, good luck picking out oh, 20% of the words that appear on this album. Um, you'll get one here and there, otherwise I have no clue, and I'm not going to bother reading any because... The site I tend to use doesn't have any, and I think you can find them elsewhere. I did a brief uh, perusing on Google, so I think they are findable. But uh, it's just endlessly amusing to me that the that the site I, I I always use for this because it has everything has nothing for this album, um, and that's part of the brand, I suppose. It's something that has been documented a lot. It is something that has been asked of the band a lot, and it's something that they have responded to a lot, and sort of amusingly. Um, a lot of, like, you'd be disappointed if you found out kind of stuff, <laughs> but there are actual words in there. It's really hard telling what they are, and it's honestly kind of incidental. Uh, this is kind of a peak moment of the the voice as an instrument kind of thing. Um that it's part of the mix, it's it's elevating or uh, right, supporting the music in some very deliberate and in some very unique way. Um, so it's not that what's being sung here isn't important, uh, it's just that it's not what you're going to hear the first time through. Um, so we can think of that as a, as a marked by vagueness moment that is just really hard to know what they're even saying so this is this is an album of vibes it's an album of moods uh, and the mood is very pretty it's very shimmery um shimmering synths and guitars abound across this thing it's very much in conversation with less the dirginess of a jesus and mary chain and more the just kind of clean pop soundings of the 80s um it, it's picking those up in a different way um and the whole thing to me feels like you're strolling on a warm, maybe a bit of a muggy night, just given some of the rhythms on here, and you're surrounded by fireflies. You see these little moments of light, these little shimmers of of beauty, these uh, little 
you know, just pockets of kind of peace and wonder and maybe awe. And, and to me, that's a lot of the sound in in their synths in particular and also in their guitars. They're very plinky overall. Uh, so you get kind of that like flashing um, feeling to it. And there's just, I think, kind of an abiding warmth to the whole thing. You can hear it in the low end here in a way that you can't with the other two necessarily. Um, you have stuff like... Um, I can't read my own writing. Well, that's good. Which does seem appropriate for this episode about people whose lyrics are so incomprehensible that it's like a major part of the of the band. So <laughs> you being unable to read your own writing about them may have clinched my choice, whether or not that's appropriate. Pitch the baby was what I wanted. <laughs> I can't fucking clue what I wrote here. Um... Anyway, uh, a song like Pitch the Baby, which I can totally read in my own writing, um, I think rewires late 80s U2 uh, and even the Smiths to some degree. Like, um, uh, How Soon Is Now? I think you can kind of hear that, like the chugginess of that, that line, that riff, that kind of circular thing. Um, you can hear that in Pitch the Baby. Um, but it it like it, it drops it back just a little bit and makes it feel like a like to me the sensation of this is a strobe light with kind of interpretive melodies around it. So it's like that rhythm, that riff is happening, and that's sort of the strobe light. And if you imagine cinematically, like every couple seconds you get the flash of light and someone is dancing and suddenly they're somewhere else. Like they're moving like they're moving around and you get this um, you know, kind of shadow of them just in different places constantly. Um that to me is kind of what Pitch the Baby is up to, that you have that, again, that kind of chugginess to it, um, but in terms of the synth, in terms of the, the guitar overlays, in terms of the vocals, um, they're kind of syncopated, and you get that sort of interpretive uh, um, uh, interpretive dance type thing to it, that interpretive melody. Uh, again, this is a band in conversation with a lot of what's happening in the 80s, and rather than... Um, you know, the Jesus and Mary change is saying, like, how dirty can we make all of this? The Cocktail Twins seem to be more interested in, like, you know, making their own spin, but, like, all right, how do we fuzz it up in different ways? Um, and to that, I think they're fuzzing up kind of 80s pop punk adjacent stuff, um, you know, stuff like The Smiths or like an NXS or like a big country. So, uh, so less emphasis on the punk there, maybe. Um, but stuff that was ready for arenas, stuff that is danceable, stuff that is, again, adjacent to kind of, uh, I, I meant post-punk, but also pop-punk. Like, you can see kind of the beginnings of that in here, too. Um, most often across the thing, the synths are striking some ascendant or, or starry tone. And to me, that's kind of the striving romanticism of the whole thing. Um Tim describes this episode elegantly as slow roller rink music, and I think the Cocktail Twins are probably the best version example of that here. Um, so you get this kind of fuzzy, hazy, vague roller rink music, or to me, and this is especially going to be true of the chromatics, like you could easily see this in like a sad, isolated, kind of cold bar. You know, we get images of the very mournful like singer-songwriter just playing something very slow um, and yet very oddly twinkly in like, you know, bars in 
uh, isolated countrysides. Um, you know, I think this is something we see on TV and in movies with some regularity. Um, and Heaven or Las Vegas, you know, wouldn't be out of place there. Um, so we have kind of that sadness to it as well, I think. And to me, again, it is how they're pulling in these synths in their guitar lines. And like, that's kind of the, the striving or the yearning romanticism. There are these little bursts of light that we keep, that we're attracted to the whole way. Um, and, you know, a good example of this is the title track, which in general is, is depressed and cold and isolated. Um, but running through that are just these laser cutting synth lines, uh, these little bursts of energy, these little bursts of mood that, Similar to how, you know, distortion is working for the Jesus and Mary train, these little moments are acting to cut through what is kind of the heart of this thing, so to speak. Um, and I'd be remiss, too, if we didn't talk about the title, which is a great one. Um, uh, it's it's so evocative and just really stands out. Um, you know, I think it's fitting, too. This is an album that could easily be have become tacky and decadent. Las Vegas, um, right? All the elements are there. It could have easily become one of those 80s um, pop albums or, or uh, you know, synth rock albums that is uh, is is just as much, as muchness is decadent. I said is tacky, is all the things you think of when you think of Las Vegas um, that is, you know, rose-colored, candy-colored, or cherry-colored, as the band might say. Um and yet it's it's dedicated to these little moments of again of starriness uh these little moments that rise above everything these 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 warm moments um you know regardless of what instrument that's with voice synth guitar uh bass drum you know something is always kind of cutting through trying to rise out of this kind of general malaise, this general fuzziness, and it's not nearly as heavy as the Jesus and Mary chain, um, but you get that similar kind of layering, I think, of, um, you know, trying to find that that warm moment, but Cocktail Twins kind of inverted, um, where you're like trying, you're trying to rise out of that instead of dig into it. Um, so, you know, for an album that could have easily been you know, the things we, we go with Las Vegas, it's something that is looking for kind of those more, uh, not literally religious, although I wouldn't know, I don't know the lyrics to this, but those more kind of divine feelings. Um, and that, you know, I don't think I've literally said the word romanticism, but consider that my argument for, uh, tending to be or make romantic. Um, and that is essentially my assessment of, uh, heaven or Las Vegas. Any, thoughts on this one Tim any any tracks that stand out I know I've, I've talked about only two in particular um, I guess I would add I think in so much as this album has something similar to just like honey where maybe you've heard it and just it's one of those uh, as I'm as I'm coining those wait a minute moments uh, I think cherry colored funk is probably the one which is incidentally also the first track here so uh, you don't have to go far into either of these to hear that maybe you you've heard this band before and just didn't know who it was but anything anything from you Tim well one thing I wanted to to sort of say in our um, metacognitive senses you are you are very much a, a tactile music describer that the audio becomes feeling 
And this album, it's interesting listening to you talk about, like, the audio becomes visual. Um, but I think there is something, like, nimbus about this, which which I think has that sort of, like, atmospheric gauze going on about it. Um, that stretch of 50-50 um, clown, heaven or Las Vegas, and I wear your ring kind of stuck out to me as I was listening to this. Like, that was maybe the hardest that it was and I wear your ring that I would, at least as far as I got to, to listen to this when I sort of jumped around a little. Um, but even in like the sort of harder moments, it's still well off of the hardness of, of Jesus and Mary chain, let alone like some of the, the shoegaze stuff that we talked about earlier in our series or um, any of the sort of electronic stuff that we've, we've dipped into. Um, it just, it does, it does feel very, very like creppy. There is something sort of paper mache about, about all of it. And I mean that in like the best possible way, because it is, it is super pleasant. Like there is like a, a genuinely pleasing, um, like sort of softness, delicateness to, um, to the album that I did enjoy. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's always with this one especially like you can just kind of hear and f- and feel a film over the thing um and it's not like it is keeping you separated it's not like putting you at immense distance like some other production tricks might but uh it's i don't know it's sort of like this membrane around the whole uh, around most of the songs anyway um and it does create this really interesting sensation while you're listening and i agree about kind of the middle run of this album. Um, and related to that, I, this is a, a rare album for me anyway, where I think probably the middle stretch is the strongest one. Um, you know, I tend to find that either the, the beginning or the end of albums is usually stronger for me anyway. And yeah, I, I agree about that middle stretch. It's a, for me anyway, kind of a rare moment of an album where I think the middle run is the strongest uh, I tend to think either the beginning or the end is strongest on most albums, for me anyway. But here, you know that exact stretch you laid out, fifty fifty clown title track, I wear your ring. Uh, that's just some of the best and most beautiful stuff on here, and I, I love the opening too. Cherry colored funk and pitch the baby. We've talked about well, talked about one and talked about another in in pun form. Um, but yeah, it's really that middle stretch of this album that does it for me. Like, I think it's good all the way through. And this is another short one. This one's 37, 38 minutes, I think. Um, and 10 songs long, like, inc- like great economy across this whole thing. Uh, but yeah, it's that, it's that middle section that really drives it all home for me, where you can really hear kind of everything they're up to, the, the somberness of it, um, the the warmth or the joy that maybe they're searching for in all of these. And again, that kind that film, that membrane, that uh, ineffable something that's just kind of around all of these songs that keeps them contained into their own little uh, fuzzy, hazy worlds. Um, anything else about this one? So I looked up the lyrics to Heaven or Las Vegas as best I could because, um, you know, we've talked about how this doesn't have any lyrics and if those actually are the lyrics it's just as well we don't know what they are because they make absolutely no sense you gotta read them man i have never actually looked at them i'll be honest 
All right, let's see if I let's see if I can't find some that. I'll, that I'll stand say out. too. This is an album that I've you know it's not like one of my personal like top ones, but I go back to it every so often. Like it's a just very pleasant album to listen to. So I've I've heard most of these songs a decent number of times. Have never bothered to learn anything happening. So I'm really excited for how much Tim is chuckling as he as he reads these dramatically. <laughs> All right, I'm just sort of going at random here. Furthermore, let's blast it off. I'm dizzy, so I go another bit it off. Come fantasy for a carnival. I'm empty before our wedding. Singing on the famous street. I want to love me. Am I just in heaven or Las Vegas? It's so much more brighter than the sun is to me. The chill must itch in my soul. That's like any old playing card. I don't understand. Honestly, like, I need to look at it more, but I think I have <laughs> an argument based on that. Maybe that'll be the death style, just me deciphering Cocktail Twins lyrics. <laughs> that was kind of a serious offer that we're doing in real time. What do you think about that, Tim? How would that be as a death style? <laughs> well, here I thought you were going to uh, to do your, your favorite wait-a-minute bands as a, as a decile topic instead. That uh, might require a much longer... Uh, uh, dissertation from me, but yeah, that's probably actually the decile. Maybe the deciphering cocktail twins lyrics can be a like, I don't know, a one-off somewhere else or running or something. Scholarly. <laughs> Maybe those can be those can cocktail twins lyrics can be my segues after this episode to the um, end. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, anywho, uh, thank you, Elizabeth Fraser, for your legitimately wonderful voice um, that, you know, I said this is kind of peak voices instrument thing. Um, and it's not just because lyrics are largely indecipherable, but it's because she has a really powerful voice. Um, but thank you, too, for <laughs> this delightful weirdness in your lyrics. And yeah, you were right. We're probably better off not knowing. Let's go to our second option, uh, which is the, uh, the Chromatics and their 2012 album Kill for Love. Tim and I discovered before this, before hitting record on here, the New Jersey connection that the Chromatics have. So you can mark that off your episode bingo card that we indeed have found the Jersey connection. And Tim, I want to, you're going to write down a whole bingo card now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Tim, I have a question for you too. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of, you know, wait a minute bands and also like, I've heard this in something. The chromatics have been in something that you know. I'm curious if you if you know what it is. Now let me let me uh, vaguely say it this way too. It is in. So it's a TV show. It's a series that you are familiar with and have watched part of, but I don't think you have watched the part that they physically appeared in. It's not Deadwood, is it? No, it's Twin Peaks. Ah, <laughs> so uh, chromatics are basically like a house band, and I I forget if it's literally the first episode of the revival, but it's one of the early episodes of um, right, the 2017 Grand Edition. Um, and I want to ask you this follow up: having listened to the chromatics and have or having listened to Kill for Love, do they sound like a Lynch band? Do they sound like a Twin Peaks band? Yeah, the part where I mean this this makes perfect sense to me. Um 
I think the not to steal steal thunder here, but there's that um, these streets will never look the same. Where I kind of like looked away and was doing something else, and then I realized it was the same song. I'm like, okay, it's this kind of band. Um, like this is what we're doing. Like here's what we're up to, and that's like a very David Lynch thing. Like that moment where you realize, oh, it's one of his movies, right? Like that same kind of that same kind of energy was was definitely in here. So that is, that seems appropriate to me. And it's weird too because the uh, like the opening stretch of this album after the, the the literal opening song, I think like tracks two through four or five, maybe like are relatively to the rest of the thing jaunty like they're pretty mm-hmm. short like they're poppy in a way that the middle section of this album just isn't um you know like you said we have some stretching songs here we have stuff that you know if you're a fan of a band like the war on drugs uh, a newer band well this is a, a newish band too um but if you're if you're fans of that kind of sprawling like heartland synth rock um that is in vogue right now which is fun. Like I like a lot of those bands. Um, but like the middle of this album is, is doing something similar to that complete with the interstitials. Uh, there's at least two, I forget if I'm forgetting one, uh, tracks on here that are instrumental or have just kind of indecipherable vocal harmony behind them. Um, and both of the ones I'm thinking of are, are gorgeous. Um, and I think vital to, you know, the, the arc of this album, which is much longer than the other two. Um, you're looking at 80 minutes, I think. Um, but yeah, it definitely has those parts where it's like, I, uh, I, I've listened to this one of the three, this is the one I've listened to most. Uh, and even yesterday when I was revisiting it, um, I still had a moment and it was with the streets will never look the same where I came in at the end and it was at like the eight minute mark. And I was like, Oh crap. I thought we were onto the next one already. <laughs> Not crap, but like I had the same moment still. And I've listened to this one a bunch of times, but yeah, you had your hand. Yeah. This one, um, to go with something we were discussing a couple days ago, this, this album is about the same length as the emperor's new groove with credits. Is that your decile? Just the emperor's new groove and how it still slaps. I don't I don't know how I'm going to get that in there, but I'm not going to rule it out. I'd be down for that. Um, all right, so I... So that's a good, I think... Uh, right, again, this is a, another theory I introduced in an early episode that, like, right, I think albums have these little sections. I don't think that's particularly novel of me. Um, but the end of this one gets very... It, it's less ponderous than the middle um, in it's less literally ponderous. Like the songs are shorter again. Um, they're not as sprawling. Um, they're not as heartlandy, so to speak, but in terms of mood, in terms of emotion and lyrically, I think they're probably the most ponderous um, in terms of pondering. Um, uh, like there's kind of, you know, trying to, uh, automatic for the people that's the rem album i want like kind of similar endings in a way i um, mean we'll get down to the the symbolism of that too um but i want to start with the opening track which is a cover of neil young and one of the few ways you'll hear neil young on spotify <laughs> is the chromatics doing into the black which neil young is hey hey my my 
parentheses into the black. Um, or on Russ Never Sleeps, the opening is, hey, hey, my, my, parentheses, out of the blue. It's the opening, and then at the end, he does into the black win like the crunchiest freaking thing ever it like that's a great live album if you can find that elsewhere which you can um but chromatics so that song as kind of a proto grunge thing honestly that young can play you know more as an acoustic thing or again can really just dial up the guitar uh crunch on that um but it is sort of a, you know, it's definitely harder rock um, and it's sort of a proto-grunge thing. Um, and I think an often not entirely misinterpreted, but uh, uh, too narrowly focused on song, right? And the better to burn out than to fade away line is the thing that always gets pulled out. Um, it's a great line. I understand that. And like, but it's also a song that is very aware of its mortality by which i mean young seems to be very aware of his mortality and of his age and of just passage of time in this thing like it's sad in ways that i think we maybe don't pay attention to enough when we just pull out better to burn out than to fade away um because i think young is also writing this at a moment where he feels himself fading away which is i think just the perpetual neil young experience um but all of that to say, right, there's an important somber element to that song that I think we don't think about all the time, uh, but that the chromatics took and ran with because they hollowed this thing out. Um, it is sparse instrumentation. Um, it is ethereal instrumentation. Um, and it's a slight bellwether for the rest of the album, I think, in terms of sound, but I think in terms of mood, it sets everything up beautifully. Uh because this is a pretty haunting thing. Um, it takes this, you know, this anthem from young of, of age and kind of just stubborn insistence of, of a rebellious zeitgeist. Uh, and again, hollows it out. It's driven by a, 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 what I've written as a tumbleweed riff, by which I mean, uh, like, it has kind of that Western feel to it. Like you could easily imagine it at the corral when everything's empty, when it's just the tumbleweed going across the street, like no one's there. Um, and just very in aching vocals um, that are, you know, the cocktail twins have beautiful vocals, but for my money, it's the chromatics have the, just the most striking ones or the most forceful ones. I think here, um, and I think that, right, just that, that minimalism of the whole thing, the reduction of the spirit of that song to the sound of, of this version of it um, is very elegantly done. And I think it sets up. Again, there is this kind of thin, translucent nature of it, and I think it's making the, again, what Young is doing with that song, like the sadness of it, the but the insistence of it at the same time, um, that's kind of the, the translucence on this whole thing. I think, I think that feeling of mortality, that feeling of time, you just kind of feel it here. Um, the vagueness, the elusiveness, the fuzziness, um, it's less fuzzy in literal ways. It's not like this album isn't nearly as distorted, um, but it's produced such that, right. There are a lot of, elusive melodies and riffs that just kind of 
you know, as you were saying with uh, these streets will never look the same, kind of the whole of that thing, I think we can get that on in, in smaller chunks on other songs where it's like, oh, that thing's still going or that disappeared and then it kind of came back. Like, right, we get not sort of the driving circular stuff of – uh, perhaps what the cocktail twins are working with more, but um, these very meandering um, riffs and melodies and, and lines and parts of songs. Um, and tending to be or to make romantic, uh, I think that speaks well to what I've argued is our general somewhat misguided understanding of Into the Black. But I think in the vocals on this song in particular, as haunting and as sad as they sound and this is true across the whole album there's always something beautiful there there's always some hope there um there's always something compelling about those that um right that's kind of the the kernel that we're we're striving to hang on to and you can hear that kind of quiet insistence in the vocals in into the black and you know i'm going to go into more songs but i think this this opening track is just really evocative and, and real an exemplar of what kill for love is up to in general but um before i move on to other stuff any thoughts on that song tim or, or, or just any thoughts on the chromatics based on your uh on your listen i just thought they seemed um they seemed really really good at like just not being trapped in a certain, in a certain, like, folder or mold. Like, it was, it was interesting because, like, you sort of have the stereotype of, like, very electronic uh, bands where, like, everything kind of sounds the same or it sounds like other electronic music. Um, but you sort of, like, watch them expand what you think they can actually do. Um like sort of at the towards the end like the birds of paradise matter of time part of the album like i was sort of listening i'm like this doesn't sound like other electronic music that i have listened to for like this podcast not that again not that this is either one of our fortes but like it it sounds different they're trying something which is sort of unusual but it's also unusual compared to what is already on the album um it, it was a very cool listen because I thought the whole thing was just super eclectic within itself. Like, compared to the first four songs, which, again, starts with, like, a famous Neil Young cover, like, starting there and then getting into, like, These Streets Will Never Look the Same, which reminded me a little bit, not in terms of sound, but in terms of, like, what it's doing um, with, like, Moon in Antarctica, like, that sort of stretch right there, like, that that was sort of reminiscent, and then towards the end, like, those songs are not like anything in the first two-thirds either. Like, it, it, it refuses to be pinned down in a way that I thought was really exciting. Um, and and the more you listen, the more you sort of get that, that sense that it's it's just going to keep contorting over the over the course of itself. We love a good modest mouse pull, uh, <clears throat> always and forever. Um, yeah, I think part of that, I think you're right. I really like what you're saying here. Um, the band has talked about uh, this a little bit in that like, they, they name as reference or influence points 
more pop stuff than they do electronic stuff. So they're working, initially this is a band kind of working in No Wave, which is like a punk electronic uh, weirdness that a lot of people don't listen to or like. Um, but they, very clearly, they've moved out of that for Kill for Love um, and, and uh, for some work before this too. Um, but right, part of them's coming out of that, part of them's coming out of more of a pop lens, I think, than they are an electronic one. Um, though they're definitely right proficient with their electronics, like they're using them in really interesting ways. Um, but right, they name Madonna as a particular influence, and you can kind of hear that weirdly in some places. Um, there's a song, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one. Uh, might be the beginning of these streets, but like Eye of the Tiger, like there's a kind of interpolation of that riff. Um, um, ballads of all stripes, 80s, ba- like those big, corny, uh, elegant 80s ballads of all stripes. Like you can hear that across this whole thing. Synth rock, synth pop, obviously. Right, the stuff that Jesus and Mary train is, chain is basically trying to kill in 85 chromatics are bringing back here in 2012 and working with it in new ways and and you know building it into as you were saying really well like this music that keeps surprising uh that refused to to settle um that kind of makes good on the promise of it into the black like it keeps like it's it keeps striving for some kind of relevance or for some kind of newness um you know whether that's doomed to fail or not, and maybe it is, but like it, it, <clears throat> it keeps not doubling back on itself, but just um, again, as you were saying, it, it is elusive in itself. Like it keeps moving places. Um, um, dust to dust turns guitars into um, basically sirens wailing and like a buzzsaw. It, it's mournful and lonely, and it gets into a bit of the Right, kind of that industrial-sounding pain of, like, the Jesus and Mary chain. You get that kind of hardness there for a moment. Um, uh, And in addition to that, you have songs like These Streets Will Never Look the Same or Running From the Sun, um, where it's not Ruth Radelet singing. It's um, uh, Johnny Jewell, but it's... it's, So male vocals, which is kind of... It stands out in the chromatics catalog, but run through auto-tuning. Um, and quite heavily too, right? You get that robotic distance across the whole thing. You get that kind of shimmeriness, that echo to the vocals. And that is, you know, it's not exclusively electronic music by any means, but like back in our burial episode in particular, um, right? That's something you can hear in kind of darker electronica and and experimental stuff as well. Um, The, just the production on the vocals there. And it adds again to the sense, this mournfulness, this loneliness, and those are feelings that are going to run through this whole thing, regardless of what kind of subgenre they're picking up on. Uh, and it all comes to a head at the end, which, you know, as you were saying, is different from the the, the thirds before it. Uh, the ending is more windswept. There's more. There's just an eeriness to the whole thing, um, and it sounds more mechanical in kind of literal ways. Um, Birds of Paradise, which is a song you brought up, I love this one, uh, and it layers kind of this vinyl crackle, um, which I think you could hear as vinyl, you could hear like maybe it's a fire crackling um, kind of far off, and just this 
really aggressive metal on metal sound. It's like if you were beating a xylophone with a metal rod, um, or right, just just ring like putting, you know, doing some John Cage shit and just putting metal on piano strings and just kind of and playing what is very nice melody and a pretty simple one not like banging on the thing but you just hear that metallic clinking that metal hitting metal um the and, and right the the impact of that the percussiveness of that the kind of tinny percussiveness of it um and rattle it here very somber vocals um but over the course of the song, she becomes again that kind of sight of warmth and beauty, like in this metallic, kind of crackling, breaking, staticky thing. This this fuzzy, vague thing. Uh, she becomes the thing that you kind of center on, uh, the source of romance. To bring it back to our gauzy definitions, um, but these are cold and lonely songs with elusive and guarded guarded feelings. You know, I mentioned before bands in those isolated country bars. Um, well, it's not incidental that the chromatics are literally playing in such a place in Twin Peaks. Like, this is a band perfect for that setting, I think. Um, and I want to end uh, just by talking about the river in particular, um, which is another sad and lonely song um, about whether it's waiting for change or waiting for someone to come back, right? It's about waiting in a relationship, wanting something more, um, not getting it and just continuing to wait. Um, which is again, sad, lonely, kind of cold, um, vaguely insistent. It's kind of a thematic echo of into the black, perhaps that it's aware of this passage of time of this change of the, potential danger of right just following that not blindly but following that kind of stubbornly and yet it it continues um and yet the the narrator here is insistent i'm i'm still waiting um right there's kind of a quiet confidence in that and a quiet sad confidence maybe um but musically this thing is very different from that lyrical mood um it's very shimmery there's a pulsating outro the the drums across most of the thing are right they're kind of a heartbeat that's basically what the rhythm is beating out um and it's interesting to me that right a song with so much musical life uh with again that kind of quiet pulsating that quiet insistence um is called the river is invoking the river which often musically anyway is used for its death symbol or as a death symbol right this is what we see at the end of automatic for the people how rem is using it um and like right it's just this really interesting juxtaposition that i think adds to the vagueness of it all um that adds to the the translucence of it all um that the romantic feeling the romanticism of it that we all want that is really worth striving for that is worth waiting on uh there's always an element of mortality to that um that you know whether we die or it dies like that's always there and that makes it all the sweeter in a way um you may say that love is worth killing for with my bad puns out of the way um yeah there we go anything on chromatics tim 
No, I don't know that I've got anything, anything that I haven't said. I'm mostly just sort of forecasting ahead to decision making because I am not sure, but, <laughs> but we can, we can head there if, if, um, unless you had, um, other, other things to catch up on, on this album. I think I'm ready for Spiel. I'm just happy if I got you to a place of actual decision after the uh, un- unintended support for um, for Heaven in Las Vegas by not being able to read my notes. Mm-hmm. Heaven or Las mm-hmm. Vegas, rather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, ready for Spiel? Yeah. All right, so today's entry, number 55, as I totally knew at the beginning of this on the spin list, is... Uh, Psycho Candy, the 1985 album by Jesus and Mary Chain. Uh, Markers of Cool, as we have established firmly at the beginning of this episode. Um, And as we also said, Beach Boys, if you're a random through a table saw. Um, it's It's an album with simpler, beautiful chamber pop uh songs you know at the center of of each construction that's just layered in in multiple levels of hard crunchy abrasive metallic distortion um there's beautiful kernels romantic kernels uh you know centers of warmth and of joy and of beauty that are just stuck in layers of of mess of fuzz of haze of distortion um and that gets us into our theme of gauzy gauzy goodness whatever we end up calling it on the website um but bands that right take these different senses of gauzy and kind of run with them or that we can read into them anyway um so option number one is heaven or las vegas the 1990 album by cocktail twins um which is the most shoegazy of an episode with three shoegaze adjacent bands um cocktail twins are definitely part of that movement so if that right if that helps you understand the vagueness the shimmeriness of it all the kind of translucent film across the whole thing like right this is definitely a band in the middle of that big moment uh and and helping push it forward um Vocally, lyrically, perhaps the best example of the vagueness here, of the fuzziness, because um, damned if I know anything they're saying. Tim read lyrics at me. I don't remember them. I choose never to remember them. <laughs> um, but these are beautiful songs, beautiful constructions. Um, and as we were saying, there does feel like there's just kind of this membrane, this film around most of them, particularly that middle section, um, that there is, that they are their own little entities in that way, that there's that slight wall of separation. Um, and I've likened this album to right a, a, a pleasant walk on a warm, maybe little muggy night, and you have the fireflies all around you. You get these little sparks, these little flashes, these little moments of warmth, of romance perhaps, usually in with the synths or the guitars, um, and they're always fleeting. They come in and out, they're moving around, um, and you get a lot of kind of strobing, uh, syncopated, just pulsating effect in the rhythms in particular. So this is an album in conversation with 80s post-punk, right? It has that kind of danciness to it, um, and certainly in touch with, with 80s synth-pop, um, but it's taking all that and 
right? It, it strikes these, as I said before, ascendant starry tones, right? There's that striving romanticism of, amidst this, uh, as Tim said, sad, slow roller rink vibe, um, right? There's this abiding sadness to it, or, or mournfulness, or just slowness, um, and it's it's trying to find the flashes around that. Uh, and our second option here is Kill for Love, the 2012 album by The Chromatics. Um, speaking of sadness, of cold, of isolation, um, this is the album for you if you're looking for that more in this episode. Um, this is a band musically pretty restless across the whole album. Um, you can hear a whole bunch of different things here from the more immediate opening stretch um, that is more just more explicit synth pop um, than anything. The middle stretch <clears throat> that is... Uh, more ponderous, more wandering, uh, more, you know, war on drugs-esque, um, you know, that kind of sprawling heartland rock, synth rock thing, um, including some songs that Tim and I were both confused hadn't ended yet, uh, right? These are songs with multiple sections that are very interested in just where the sounds can go and are going, um, and you get these sort of elusive melodies, uh, parts, you know, rifts, rhythms, whatever part you want to look at. Like, it's stuff that happens and then disappears for a while and comes back. Or you, um, right, or, or just the elusiveness of the journey of the whole thing, of how it's it's changing on itself, uh, right? Again, echoing the challenge of the cover of Into the Black um, as it goes through and culminates in this ending section that is um, colder in a way, um, or, or at least in mood, I think. Um, but it's more windswept. There's just an eeriness to it. There's more of a mechanical element to it. And I, I outline that a bit and birds of paradise in particular, how right, there's just literally more mechanical sound there. Um, but I think at the end of the album, we're really getting that sense of, you know, for one that has been pretty lonely the whole way through, um, it doesn't betray that feeling. Uh, there's still that kind of, uh, solitary, solitariness solitude we'll go with solitude <laughs> um yeah there we go um of the river but that insistence on waiting on waiting for love um that hanging on to that kind of romantic kernel and, and the music um supplements that here shows it there is uh i get there it's reminiscent of a heartbeat it has that kind of pulsating effect to it that shimmeriness that um Right, if I invoke the fireflies again, like you get those little moments of hope, and the river is someone hanging to those um, because you have to to make it through. Um, right, you need those. So, Tim, cocktail twins or chromatics? Yeah, this one's a this one's a tough one because they're they're both gauzy for sure. Like they both have that going for them. That's what I was just going to say. I have done my job if they are both gauzy, and that is <laughs> that is all I can hope for. But anyway, continue. So the the thing to, to go with here is really a question of which aspect of that do you find more appealing or more interesting. Um, and the Cocteau Twins definitely have a vagueness about them. More, I mean, even more than just like the the running gag we've got and that history has about not being able to understand anything they say, even if you read what they're saying. Um, but there, I, I think kill for love is just a little bit more 
romantic. There's something there's something about the shape of that album um, in the same way that like there is like a literal shape to like this roll of gauze and how you like wrap it around something, um, which I do just think is is more interesting. And the the music itself has, again, like it's sort of a harder quality, but it's still translucent. It's still not all the way like pinnable and if you were try to to pin it down it would still tear if you like moved it away um so i'm i'm gonna go chromatics here i think a, a tough choice but i i'm i sort of feel like that's the the way i'm being led by the by the terminology uh i like it i like all of these albums um this is this is not an episode with any like deep personal favorites for me, but it's it's just all albums I like, particularly the sub options. Like I find Heaven or Las Vegas or Kill for Love and Kill for Love both just honestly pleasant to listen to. Right, right. There, you know, I've talked about the sadness in both of them, so that's definitely there. But um, I find both of them to just be easygoing experiences to put on um, and to kind of chill with. So there is that certainly that vibe level to them if that's what you're looking for um uh but yeah i mean i like both i was going to be happy with either and sad for the other either way right the kind of running refrain on this um but that's good it makes me argue for both of them well um yeah go ahead can i try can i try pithy again real quick for for this for this okay so i have the go ahead um Psycho candy. Guess, guess, say that's my pithy attempt. That's that was me doing a better job than the meme. That is better than the meme. I Thank like you. that much more. Yeah. Thank you. Um, anything else on any of these or the talking heads while we're here? We are not. We're not starting talking heads when we're this far in. Oh, it's sad that. Uh... I mean, I brought in a Talking Heads album, but if this thing started in 1980, whew, very different list um, for more obvious reasons, but also for the Talking Heads of it all. Thank you for listening. Uh, again, our entry today was uh, number 55 on the spin list was Psycho Candy, the 1985 album by the Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, it fits very well to the tune of a certain Talking Heads song, if you're interested in playing along. Um, <clears throat> and I did, uh, I looked very briefly, I think it may be the third oldest on the list. Uh, I think Your Namesake uh, precedes it by about a month, and um, New Day Rising, I think, is like January of 85. So I don't think anything's going to beat that as we go forward, but um, definitely one of the earlier entries on the list. And as we were noticing and talking about a little, uh, a fun little run of 80s stuff here. Um, but anyway, uh, Psycho Candy, our theme was uh, gauzy goodness or gauziness, whatever. And I gave Tim the choice between Heaven or Las Vegas by Cocktail Twins and Kill for Love by The Chromatics. Uh, and Tim has chosen the... I forgot what you chose. <laughs> I'm going to let you remember. Chromatics. Hey. Yeah, Tim has chosen the chromatics to go through. I was so concerned with coming up with a segue. Um, it, it slipped my mind. We're going to see what that is in a moment. 
Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in more about us uh, and what we do and what we're up to on our blog spaces and Tim's letterboxed, uh, particularly his Emperor's New Groove thinkings um, or playlists that I'm making and also catching up on back episodes, including any of the number of ones that we have referenced today in this episode, because we can do that now. Um, including a Talking Heads one that we have, like, episode three or four or something. Um, Please go to our website, subtitlespodcast.com, where you can find all of that and more. And please do stay tuned for part two of this episode, where uh, I've been talking about um, bands that are markers of coolness, of a certain sad emo coolness, perhaps, which is not the kind of music that a beefcake would listen to. And and Tim is going to tell us about beefcakes in film.